0: The next case was presented by Dr. Isaac Levy to Dr. Lillenbaum. This is an 80 year old gentleman, a former cigarette smoker, who was on bronchoscopy back during June of last year, had some narrowing of the left upper lobe bronchus, and a bronchial biopsy at the time revealed a non small cell carcinoma.
1: What brought him in for care, or how did they find out there was a problem?
0: He had seen his primary care physician for a persistent cough, who referred him to the pulmonologist. The tumor was negative for TTF1, CK7, CK20, positive for P63. The tumor was read as showing squamous cell differentiation. Initially, his presentation, as I said, was that of a dry cough for the previous two months. Otherwise, he was feeling okay and looked pretty good. On CT of the chest, there was an 8.1 CM by 5.8 CM tumor invading the mediastinum. Additionally, there were several precarinal lymph nodes, His baseline PET-CT showed high-grade hypermetabolic activity in the medial left upper chest, invading the anterior mediastinum, and indistinguishable from the main pulmonary artery.
1: Can you talk a little bit about his overall condition, his lifestyle? He was a widower. He remarried. What was his reaction to the diagnosis?
0: He actually handled it pretty well. He's very upbeat. He was very receptive to doing whatever had to be done.
1: Did he verbalize any thoughts to you about his smoking history and now this lung cancer? No.
0: And I never got into that with him. You know, obviously I got the history that he had smoked in the past. Had COPD, but otherwise he was pretty functional.
1: How bad was the COPD? Uh, not too bad. Was he in treatment bad. for it?
0: The pulmonologist had him on inhalers, but as I said, he was very functional.
1: So you never had any major health events? No. So, Ruggiero, how would you be thinking this through? So this
0: is an
2: 80-year-old male with a unremarkable past medical history, except for perhaps COPD. Correct. I didn't hear about cardiovascular illness. No. Right. Who, despite the advanced nature of his disease, maintains a good performance status. Correct. So, based on the staging evaluation that you provided, he had stage 3B, locally advanced, mm-hmm. without disease outside the chest. Correct. This is one subset of patients for which we have very little data unfortunately. If you look at all the major combined modality trials, looking at chemo and radiation in different sequences, there have been very few patients over the age of 80. In fact, there have been very few patients over the age of 75. So it's difficult to extrapolate the data that we typically use for the 65-year-old patient to someone like this. What we know about it and Corey Langer actually published a retrospective analysis of two of the RTOG studies, is that for patients up to 75 who maintain a good performance status and felt to be eligible for aggressive chemo and radiation, they did as well as younger patients, as far as efficacy, they did have more toxicity, particularly hematological toxicity, but not necessarily treatment-related deaths. What we don't have, again, is when you get into this category of very old patients, octogenarian patients, and this is something that we have looked at in advanced disease, but not yet in stage three disease, patients who are candidates for combined modality therapy. So this is a difficult discussion as far as which strategy you would use in someone like this.
1: We had a really wild discussion, unexpected discussion, I think, yesterday at the think tank about the issue of cetuximab. This is a patient with squamous cell in combination with radiation and chemo, and how interested the group was in that concept. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think everybody has a sense, perhaps a
2: hope, that cetuximab will play a major role in non-small cell lung cancer in combination with radiation, particularly in stage 3 the RTOG study that was presented at ASCO showed an unprecedented you know median survival of about 22 months for RTOG standards i mean there are other studies you know, in know CALGB for example or outside of CALGB UNC for example that showed similar survival but for RTOG those results were better than their historical results with no significant increase in toxicity now, that wasn't just cetuximab alone in combination with radiation. That was carboplatin, paclitaxel, plus cetuximab, along with radiation.
1: So how would you be thinking through whose options at this point, Rogerio? Yeah. So I think the first decision
2: is the one we just alluded to. Is this someone who is a candidate for combined modality therapy, or this is someone that you would like to approach with a single modality, either chemotherapy alone or less preferably, but still valid radiation alone if this at least lead to a palliation in his immediate symptoms.
1: I asked you about cetuximab because I was just wondering, would you consider cetuximab and radiation without chemo?
2: So unlike some of my colleagues yesterday, I personally have not done this and I would be hesitant to do it outside of a clinical trial. It doesn't take away from my hopes because I do think there's a lot of expectation and it's reasonable that this drug will have a role in this disease. But I have not used it outside of a clinical study, Now, I
1: mean, you tell me around the table, if this man had locally advanced head neck cancer, would you give him chemo and radiation? Or would you give him cetuximab and radiation at teeth? Cetuximab and radiation. So that's why I was thinking, you know, maybe that's where we're heading mm. in non-small cell lung Absolutely. cancer. Absolutely. In the future. Absolutely. Okay, so what about today, though?
2: Yeah, so today, even though the studies that looked at the induction versus concurrent or induction first followed by concurrent didn't really show an advantage for induction therapy. And the same can be said for consolidation therapy. I personally would approach someone like this with induction chemotherapy. What kind? I would use an attenuated carboplatin paclitaxel regimen if I felt that this was someone who could handle a combination regimen.
1: And then at what point would you start thinking about radiation?
2: Two cycles. So what does that do for me? And this is the same approach that we have taken in poor performance status patients. Number one, it gives you a real sense of how responsive his disease is. Because the truth is, if it's not really responsive to chemo, it's not the local modality that will you know, lead to long-term benefit. Two, it will give you a very good sense of how he might be able or not to handle combined modality therapy. And number three, particularly, perhaps the most important reason is that you are able often to improve people's performance status and functional status just by palliating the initial symptoms and improving their quality of life with the initial chemo. So it's an in vivo test, number one. It's a test of their tolerance, number two. And it's the possibility to get them to a better level you know, by the time that you're considering combined modality therapy. So I would probably do this in someone like this. Again, there are 80-year-olds, and there are some other 80-year-olds. So This it, guy, I would probably consider a regimen like this. So same patient, age 60? In that case, I would have difficulty justifying the induction So you're just going right ahead with the chemo yes. radiation. Yes,
1: yes.
0: Okay, so let's find out what happened. All right, so I treated the patient with taxoteric and carboplatin. With concurrent radiation therapy. And I mean, he was an 80 year old, but otherwise he was an 80 year old going on 65. But the regimen was clearly too toxic for him. So radiation therapy was discontinued. What
1: happened in terms of toxicity? Uh,
0: Neutropenia, mucositis. He just wasn't able to handle it.
1: Did he have to be admitted? Yes. How long was he in the hospital? Just for a few days. Just one admission? Yeah, one admission. So this is with the first course?
0: Correct. Correct.
1: How sick did he get?
0: There was no infection, no febrile neutropenia. Just run down, probably more from his neutropenia than anything else.
1: Is so that the sickest he's ever felt in his life?
0: Yes. How did you give the
2: carboplatin taxotere with the radiation? Once every three weeks or weekly? Every or? three weeks. Every three every weeks. Every three weeks.
0: Okay. Yeah. So he got one cycle of taxotere carbo with the radiation. Now, when that event took place, the radiation was interrupted. And once he recovered, he got GSF support. And on recovery... I didn't give him any additional radiation. I substituted Abraxane for Taxotere and gave him an additional cycle of Abraxane and Carboplatin. And he did well. He actually handled that much better, and a subsequent PET imaging was completely negative. So how much radiation did he get? He probably only got about a week or 10 days, of maybe two weeks of radiation total. So in retrospect, I don't know how much the radiation therapy contributed. So how long was he on treatment at that point? What happened? So then he had a subsequent PET scan. PET scan was negative. So we're now at a point where, you know, everything's clear. He has no sight of disease. And for completeness, I consulted with the pulmonologist on the case, and we had a thoracic surgeon actually evaluate him because we had clearly downstaged him at that point. And then after the discussion about the potential morbidity of surgery, he declined surgery. And so everything was on hold. The holidays were coming up around that time. And he came back to see me after the holidays, sometime in January. On repeat PET imaging, the mass was back. Same location, no other site of disease. So we had recurrence of the original tumor. So what would you be thinking at this point? And so up until that
2: point, he had received one cycle of carboplatin and docetaxel and a second cycle of carboplatin and braxen, Correct, correct. And one or two weeks of radiation.
0: About two weeks of radiation, yeah. Okay. Right.
2: And when he came back with what appeared to be a local regional recurrence or progression right. was his performance status still yeah, excellent? E- excellent. And-
0: excellent. Completely asymptomatic, no cough, very functional.
1: What prompted you to
0: switch into
1: nab out of docetaxel?
0: I was very concerned about, you know, the hematologic toxicity which you know, in retrospect was probably due to other factors as well. But that was the rationale for using nab. In that setting. So what would you be
1: thinking at this point now that he's had this sort of rapid regrowth? I
0: would
2: revisit the possibility of including radiation therapy in his treatment plan. And I would try to come up with a regimen that I think might be suitable to him because clearly his disease is demonstrating more of a local regional behavior as opposed to someone with stage 3B, who within six months has metastatic disease outside the chest. What chemo, if any,
1: would you be thinking about, or would you just give him the radiation by itself?
2: I don't know that I would give him the radiation alone, unless he really couldn't handle chemo from a tolerance standpoint. I probably would not use carboplatin taxotere because he wasn't able to tolerate that. I don't think we have any data for carboplatinabraxane in combination with thoracic radiation at least not that I'm aware of I don't think it will be when it comes up significantly different than what we know for the other taxanes but we don't have that combination worked out so I probably would stick to carboplatin paclitaxel on a weekly schedule perhaps that would be one option another option that I have used in patients who I don't want to use a taxane or clearly failed a taxane, not this man's case, he actually responded to two taxanes, would be pemetrexate, which we have used in combination with thoracic radiation based on the Chicago data
1: and the CLGB trial. There was a lot of discussion about that yesterday, yes. the pemetrexade radiation therapy combination. <laughs> yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about what we know
2: about that? So, Everett Vokes and his colleagues at the University of Chicago did a Phase 1-2 trial in non-small cell lung cancer, stage three unresectable disease with carboplatin and pemetraxate. And they were able to take both agents to maximum dose. So carboplatin to an AUC of six initially and pemetraxate at 500 per meter squared. When that was then taken to a large national study, a randomized phase two study that Dr. Govindan chairs for CaLGB, then the dose of carboplatin was dropped to an AUC of 5, which is in retrospect probably a better dose in combination with Pemetrexate. And the toxicity data was presented at ASCO not too long ago, and the results were very favorable. Efficacy seems to be in line with any other regimen that we have used. The advantage, if you believe that's the case, is that you're using a systemic regimen you know, effective at systemic doses, as opposed to more of a radiosensitizing regimen, which is how most people perceive, you know, weekly carboplatin and paclitaxel. There's just one downside in this man with pemetrexid, and this is something that we didn't know six months ago, but we do now, is the fact that it has squamous cell carcinoma. And as we have seen from some of the recent trials, pemetrexid doesn't seem to be as active in squamous cell carcinoma as it is in adenocarcinoma.
1: You're referring to that study that looked at Pemetrectate versus GEM with CIS. So this is the Cagliotti trial it was published in JCO. And Larry Einhorn wrote an editorial about it. They
2: did show a clear-cut advantage for adenocarcinomas. And then in the squamous cell, at least in comparison to CIS-GEM, there was a strong trend in favor of CIS-GEM. The converse was also true, yeah. It's a good drug. I have used it even in squamous cell carcinoma patients. So I wouldn't use a cisplatin base regimen, which I don't usually use in octogenarians in any setting, not even in the adjuvant setting, which I am a true believer of cisplatin as opposed to carboplatin. And I wouldn't use cisotoposide, so I think of the regimens that are known to work with thoracic radiation, perhaps a weekly carboplatin paclitaxel might be reasonable. If I could come up with a carboplatin, you know, NAB paclitaxel regimen, I could probably do that too, just based on the fact that his disease responded, you know, beautifully to taxanes.
1: What about the issue of carbopemetrexate and actually BEV in the older patient? I mean, where do you see that combination? Again, we talked about this a lot yesterday. Where do you see that combination heading, and what do you think about that in the 80-year-old?
2: And that's more in the advanced right. Heading, exactly, yeah, right. as opposed to locally. So I think carboplatin pemetrexed is going to become, especially in combination of bevacizumab, sort of the reference regimen in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. That's just a sense I have. I'm sure a lot of my colleagues you know, share the same feeling. It's an easy regimen. It's well-tolerated by most patients. The data from Chicago, you know, Jody Patel and others have published excellent results with carboplatin pemetrexed, and bevacizumab. So I think this is a regimen that will grow exponentially in advanced disease. Now, as far as the elderly patient, there are two issues. I do think carboplatin pemetrexed is an easy regimen and a very reasonable regimen for elderly patients. The issue we have, however, is what to do with bevacizumab in elderly patients, you know, based on the retrospective analysis of 4599 that was published in the JCO.
1: And can you summarize
2: what that said? So, what was done, they looked at the data both for efficacy and toxicity in the pivotal ECOG trial 4599 in patients 70 years of age or older. And that's a small subset analysis, they didn't really see the same efficacy parameters that they saw in the overall population. I personally that that's just a number issue you know it's a subset analysis
1: well some of the efficacy parameters were the same i think and i think pfs it was, the was the same the right. overall
2: survival was
1: unchanged right and so it's pfs you still Correct. saw it but i mean you know, it wasn't sort of the
2: same magnitude as in the overall right, right. population it was a little lower but again i think it's a power issue from a statistical standpoint i think what the concern really was was the toxicity analysis in which they saw much more toxicity in the elderly subset that they saw in the younger people in fact a lot of the treatment related deaths that occurred in that study occurred in the 70 plus population so there probably is an issue with using this agent in elderly patients and
1: Was it more hematologic? Yes. I mean I don't think they use preventive growth factor. They did though. not. Do I don't
2: think people expected to see a much higher incidence of febrile neutropenia or deaths from neutropenia with bevacizumab. But I mean,
1: you've been very involved with that whole issue and also the issue of, I mean, hematologic toxicity in the elderly and being more proactive about Uh it.
2: So I think you heard this yesterday from Ed and from others. Nowadays, if we have a patient over the age of 70 that you do believe is a candidate for a combination regimen plus bevacizumab, we typically use prophylaxis even ahead of time. I don't, follow necessarily the asco guidelines and wait to see what happens in the first cycle we will prophylax from the outset what age 70 plus especially 75 plus that's another interesting thing of that subset analysis we talk about 70 and yet the median age of the subset analysis was 74 so we're still talking about by and large you know 70 to 75 when you get to the 80 plus folks that's a different ball game and there were very few patients in that category in ECOG 4599. So you have
1: the same man, yeah. same basic you know, constitution and lack of comorbidity, attitude, et cetera, who has metastatic disease. What would generally be your first line therapy?
2: I tend not to use combination regimens in patients over the age of 80.
1: So what would you use?
2: I would have done that in this case in the initial, treatment because, as we discussed, I wanted to get a sense of, you know, his protoplasm, number one, and I wanted to try to downstage or debulk his disease as much as possible to eventually take him to a combined modality strategy. But in the advanced palliative setting, I tend not to use combination regimens. We've had a lot of experience with weekly docetaxel, you know, so that's one option that we use a lot. We publish that. I don't use vinorelbine, but that's a legitimate option in elderly patients, obviously. Pemetrexed is becoming, you know, even though we don't have firm data in the elderly patients, we are about to put together an elderly trial in CALGB, and the agent that most investigators within the committee chose as a reference was pemetrexed as a single agent. Any biologics in that trial will be sunitinib. Wow,
1: Steve. What's your weekly dose of Taxotere, 30, 35, 40?
2: Yeah, so instead of the original publication of six weeks and two weeks of break, we do three consecutive weeks with one week or two of a break, depending on how the patient handles. I tend to use either 25 per meter squared or no more than 30 per meter squared per
1: week. Right, because I think yeah. the initial recommendation was 35 and nobody Yeah, and that's very high. Yeah. 36 to be exact. Was it which, 36? Okay. Which, <laughs> you know, came
2: out of a phase one study from Hainsworth, but... I think that's too much for most elderly patients
1: and you're using growth factors there
2: not on the weekly schedule right because it's in fact the whole advantage of the weekly schedule is that you eliminate neutropenia you don't necessarily eliminate the non-heme toxicities they're still there you know nail fatigue some degree of diarrhea but the neutropenia basically goes away on the weekly schedule
1: So when you look at this kind of approach, you know, what fraction of patients like this, age 80 but in good condition, kind of sail through it? What fraction have some moderate problems? What fraction have serious problems?
2: Actually, there's published data. Paul Hesketh and I put together our studies. We had our own weekly docetaxel, and then the SWOG had the three cycles of vinaural being followed by three cycles of docetaxel, and we took out the 80-plus population, and this is a JTO publication last year. And most patients handle this very well. Now, I have to say, like any other trial of this nature, there's a pre-selection bias. I mean, only the 80-plus-year-old people that we thought would fit the eligibility performance status were treated in that schedule. I think for a good performance status, 80-year-old, this is a reasonable regimen. Now, if somebody comes and says, gee, he has almost no comorbidity. He has a good performance status. Minimal, if any, symptoms from this disease. Why don't you try carboplatin and gemzar, for example? I wouldn't have anything against that. With but just as a No, not with radiation. Uh, we're talking about no, metastatic. we talking about metastatic. Talking about with disease. metastatic disease. Yeah. Okay. But just as a general rule, I tend to be a bit more cautious in 80-year-olds.
1: So again, people. is there any clinical situation in 80-year-old with good performance status where you would consider upfront biologic with chemo?
2: Not at this point, Neil. I mean... Again, as we heard yesterday, one thing is when you try to interpret the data and apply that data to your practice, and another situation is when you have a very specific patient in front of you, like we heard, you know, in whom you might want to try something completely different. In general, I would not do that. And
1: the other thing is, I know it seems kind of strange, but, you know, numbers mean a lot in medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's adjuvant online, et cetera. We're used to numbers. As you go down, at what point do you start thinking about a biologic up front? 75, 70, 65? Or which way, at what point up, do you start saying, I don't want to use a biologic? About as what far age? As
2: age, it would have to be actually not necessarily based on age, but someone who I really think cannot tolerate chemotherapy as a single agent. Unless you run into a more selected patient, a never smoker, or someone who has a tendency to benefit from that approach. But I don't usually use biologicals based on age.
1: What about the issue of clinical research and locally advanced disease, and particularly the issue of biologics, both cetuximab as well as bevacizumab, which is being studied Mm -hmm. in the chemo radiation setting. Where do you think that's heading?
2: So I mentioned the phase two study that CLGB has completed. We hope to have efficacy data between now and the next ASCO, and that's a study of carboplatin know, with or without cetoximab, and we're anxious to see that. And we heard yesterday, RTOG has a phase three study ongoing, looking at two different doses of radiation in combination with chemo, actually carboplatin paclitaxel. And now the study will be amended to include cetuximab or not in a two-by-two factorial design. So the study that RTOG has, the phase three study uh, RTOG is conducting, we actually happen to participate in that trial, will be amended to include a question of cetuximab or not in addition to the dose question. And that should be the more definitive study in locally advanced non-small cell lung cancer. I'm not aware of studies outside of the United States with you know, cetuximab in locally advanced disease. As far as TKIs, we've lagged behind a little bit because we were all somehow you know, shocked by the results of the 0023 SWOG trial that looked at maintenance gefitinib or not after chemo and radiation followed by consolidation docetaxel, in which there wasn't a detriment to the use of gefitinib you know, versus nogifitinib in those patients. CLGB has a study in poor performance status patients. In fact, combining some of the issues we just discussed, the study was activated just two months ago. I'm the PI for that trial. So these are patients that, as I said, we don't see in phase three studies. Poor risk, weight loss, poor performance status, comorbidities, those patients will receive two cycles of carboplatin and nab-paclitaxel hoping that this is a tolerable combination for these patients, followed by thoracic radiation and erlotinib alone, during radiation only, without a maintenance component. So there's some research into EGFR-TKIs in combination with radiation and stage 3 disease, but not a whole lot.
1: And these docs are used to a lot of discussion that we have in our colon cancer programs about the work that's come out of Boston looking at bevacizumab, for rectal cancer with radiation therapy and the exciting results that have been seen there. I think Tony Wozniak has a study. Can you talk about that, what she's looking at?
2: So the SWOG, and Tony Wozniak is the PI, has a study trying to incorporate bevacizumab into their combined modality strategy, which is, again, cis and radiation followed by consolidation docetaxel. So that study brings in the bevacizumab in three different stages. It's accruing very slowly from what we heard. They have had some complications, and there are at least two other studies in the United States that were actually closed because of devastating complications associated with Bevacizumab and stage 3 disease. So this is one of those, going back to a comment you made yesterday, that you should not attempt that at home. You know, bevacizumab in combination with chemo and radiation in stage three disease right now is a no-no outside of a clinical research trial.
0: So just could you briefly follow up with the patient? Well, when the patient recurred, I actually re-challenged him. Given the initial response, I re-challenged him with carboplatinum and NAB. Received two cycles, no change by PET imaging, still doing well. He had GCSF support during that. And then at that point, because of his age and because of what we know of pemetrexid activity, he received three cycles of pemetrexid with actual worsening by PET imaging. And then at that point, I was at the crossroads and I actually contacted Rogerio to get his input. So
1: you know about this patient?
0: Yeah, I do. That's interesting. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And so we discussed, you know, BR21, before that, the patient's tumor block was submitted for EGFR and was negative. So I was literally in a quandary as to, you know, what to do with this guy. So obviously, Tarsiva, you know, was discussed it with Rogerio. And, you know, and given the fact that we know that there are responses in EGFR negative patients, he was started on Tarsiva, and he's been on it for about, I'd say about a month.
2: And just to clarify, Isaac, he was EGFR negative in terms of mutation, Correct. not by IHC or FISH, just mutation negative. Mutation negative. negative. Okay,
1: good. Are you getting either IHC or FISH on your patients?
2: Not in this setting. I think the data for selecting biological therapy based on molecular predictors is far from (laughs) ideal at this point, particularly when we look at the interest trial that we have already discussed. So in frontline, I think that's still an important issue. And I think if you run into someone who has a high chance of having a mutated tumor, you know, for EGFR, then that individual probably should receive Erlotinib as first-line management. I think the same applies even in earlier-stage disease, and that's debatable. I.e. adjuvant? Exactly. But in the second, third-line setting... I don't think we have any reason to select those patients based on molecular predictors because even the retrospective analysis did not show that the efficacy of that agent is limited to, you know, selected patients.
1: Chuck? When this patient recurred locally with locally advanced disease and you were considering radiation therapy with a radiosensitizer, would you ever consider gemzar, very, very potent radiosensitizer that's used in other diseases like pancreatic cancer, in conjunction with radiation therapy. Very low dose, 40 milligrams per meter squared. Would that be a consideration in this setting, or is there not much experience?
2: Yeah, so gyms are... Is another example of what we discussed perhaps with bevacizumab. It's a very potent radiosensitizer, and yet we haven't been able to work out a dose or a schedule that we can use safely with thoracic radiation. There's been
1: a lot of toxicity. Oh,
2: yes. Yeah. So two trials have actually been closed. The RTOG study looked at gemzar in combination with radiation to the chest and had horrendous toxicity, and the CLGB trial had two arms, one with carboplatin and paclitaxel, the other one with gemcitabine, and again, a lot more toxicity in the gemcitabine arm. So Do you know the
1: doses that were used in those two studies They were
2: higher than the doses you just alluded to. I think the doses like this are doses that are brought in from the GI experience, and I think they may end up working well. And if that's perhaps your only choice for whatever reason, and then I would probably try, but I try to shy away from gemcitabine in combination with thoracic radiation. One other comment I wanted to make is the issue of hematologic toxicity during chemotherapy and radiation therapy concurrent. You know, one of the main issues, especially in elderly patients, that we see is neutropenia and febrile neutropenia, and we are told, and have been for 15 years, that we shouldn't use growth factors in combination with chest radiation based on an old SWOG trial. So we're trying to revisit this issue. We had an institutional trial that's about to complete showing that it's actually safe. Can you, you report
1: some data on that at ASCO? We did
2: at ASCO as a poster, and it's been taken into a national RTOG trial in limited-stage small cell. So now we're using chemo and radiation with filgrastim, you know, during the chemo and radiation and then pack filgrastim in the adjuvant section. So I think... It's possible to prevent some of these hematological complications that we see during chemo and radiation if we use growth factors
1: judiciously. What was the concern before about using growth factors? In the SWOC trial, which
2: was also in small cell, Paul Bunn was the first author in that trial and used GM-CSF as opposed to G C S F. They saw, indeed, less neutropenia, but they saw more thrombocytopenia, more esophagitis, more pneumonitis, and a trend towards more deaths in the growth factor arm. So because of that study, you know, the label says you cannot use this in combination with radiation. I know people do once in a while, but you're not supposed to do it. I think what happens is with all the changes that have occurred in radiation therapy and the way, you know, volume, IMRT uh, techniques, etc., 3D planning that did not exist fifteen years ago, you know, twenty years ago, I think we're able to bring back this issue and say, I think this is safe. So we're trying to do that.
1: So are you doing that off study?
2: I have done that off study. I have acquired a certain level of comfort, you know, with growth factors in combination with chemo and radiation. So I have used it in
1: a couple of patients outside of a study. What is the regimen exactly? So it depends what
2: we are using. If we use a cisplatin based regimen, let's say cis then we don't do the way SWOG does. They still break down the cis into day one and eight, and the, the etoposide is five days. I find that cumbersome. So we do three days of cis just like we do in advanced disease in small cell. And then day four to day 14, they receive filgrastim injections. So we do that, and we have not had a single episode in our trial of febrile neutropenia. Not a single episode of dose omission, not a single episode of dose reduction. Isaac?
0: I just want to ask for her. And during, say, during concurrent chemo-radiation, you'll use GCSF?
2: Yeah, so we haven't moved on to Neolasta or peg during the concurrent chemo-radiation. For those patients who receive post-radiation chemo, you know, consolidation or however you might want to call that, then we use the new Lasta as opposed to new